of John talking about one of my favorite stories in all the Bible which is the wedding supper at Cana in Galilee but uh, tonight I'm really excited that Sharon Hirsch is going to be bringing us uh, part of her story and the gospel message um, Sharon probably needs no introduction for most of you uh, but for those of you that are new Sharon is uh, one of our board members a founding board member she's an author, speaker, 
Um, a new book is coming. Uh, her last book was called The Last Addiction, and she has a book coming out in just a few months called, it has a new title. What is it? Begin Again, Believe Again. Okay, so you want to get that book. Uh, but uh, most of all, Sharon is just an immense friend to me. Uh, few people have uh, blessed me the way that she has, and I'm just incredibly grateful uh, for her and that you get a chance to hear her tonight. So let's pray for Sharon, and then she'll bring us the message. Father, I thank you um, for how beautiful you are in Sharon. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that uh, she is willing to decrease, that you might increase. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for the way you have romanced her into such a beautiful relationship uh, with you. Lord God, I pray that you would open our hearts to hear what you have to say to us through Sharon. And not just through her words, but through her life, because your word has taken up residence in her flesh. So thank you, Lord Jesus, for this story that you're telling and that we get to see it and hear it and be a part of it. We bless Sharon, Lord God, as she, as she speaks, as we listen in your name, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as Peter said, my name is Sharon and I'm an alcoholic. And how I got here? How I recovered, why I went back, that's the story of my life. But it's not the whole story. I'm Sharon and I'm a workaholic. And how I got there and why I go back, and it's also the story of my life. But it's not the whole story. My name is Sharon and I'm a people pleaser. I'm trying to change, to let go. How I got to this place and why I left this place before it's the story of my life, too. But it's not the whole story. I'm Sharon, and I'm a sinner saved by sheer grace. And that is my story most telling. This past February, I slipped into a room hoping to go unnoticed. I mean, I quickly surveyed everyone in the room, and to my relief, I didn't know anyone. I needed to be there. And yet at the same time, I really didn't want to be. I felt this mixture of anticipation that I might get some of the help I needed, and at the same time, I was angry to be in this place again. You see, throughout the past years, I have tried many things to deal with my addictions to alcohol, work, and people-pleasing. I mean, I have white-knuckled it for years at a time. I've read a book on breaking free of bondage a few times. <laughs> I've memorized entire chapters of the Bible. I've faithfully attended Alcoholics Anonymous meetings and worked the steps with a sponsor. I have tried amino acid replacement therapy. And I have been in inpatient and outpatient treatment. And this past January, I relapsed in my alcoholism. And my friends from here at the sanctuary, uh, Elaine Stork and Clint Clark, they brought me to a treatment program in Parker, Colorado and begged me to be honest about my struggles and seek support. They knew that I was at a breaking point again. As I sat in the lobby of this treatment facility, I thought about the confession that I needed to make, that I was lonely and exhausted. I felt needy, in need of companionship and support, understanding, the strength to go on. I felt absolutely powerless to help myself. 
And oh, how I hated the broken road that had brought me to this place. A question from another patient sitting in the lobby of the treatment facility jarred me out of my thoughts. She said, are, are you Sharon Hirsch? <laughs> I sank down even lower in my seat. How did she know me? I didn't want to be recognized. I don't think I said anything to her. I looked like a deer caught in the headlights. And she said, well, I've heard you speak at my church. I've read your book. I don't know what else she said, and I don't know what I said until I finally blurted out, today I'm just Sharon, a lonely, needy, insecure, afraid, middle-aged alcoholic woman. And she gave the perfect response. She put her hand on my shoulder and she said, aren't we all? See, all of my life I have struggled with wanting to look good, hiding my needs, and crashing in my self-reliance. I identify with the confession of Henry Nowen, who said, I came to see that I lived most of my life as a tightrope artist, trying to walk on this high, thin cable from one tower to the next, waiting for the applause, unless I had fallen off and broken my leg. I don't surrender easily. I mean, you would think that a broken heart, broken relationships, broken dreams would keep me on my knees. But I am learning that continuing to embrace my brokenness is essential if I'm going to stay on the healing path. But I need to embrace more than my own brokenness. I mean, I need a story that tells me that all this brokenness leads to somewhere or, or someone besides me. Luke chapter 15, there was once a man who had two sons. The younger son said to his father, Father, I want right now what's coming to me. The first thing my counselor in treatment said to me, well, let me say this first. Even though this treatment program was not a Christian program, I happened to get the one counselor in the program who deeply loves Jesus. And the first thing he said to me is, Sharon, you don't relapse without a hard heart. A hard heart. I want what's coming to me right now. Kenneth Bailey, in his explanation of Luke's story, suggests that when the son asked for his inheritance while his father was still living, he was making a request that he wanted his father to die. I mean, this son's leaving is a much more offensive act than we might think. It comes from a heart hardened to the father, to his true home. When I relapsed, I recall saying to God out loud, God, I'm sorry, but I'm going to do this anyway. <laughs> it was a denial of the spiritual reality that my life is not my own. I belong to God. Leaving home is, is living as if I don't have a home, and I need to find something for myself by myself. Leaving home is a way of saying I don't have a father. It is a way to shake my fist at God and say, I would rather be an orphan than be at home with you. Maybe you've been there. You felt orphaned by your own choices, as I did, or, or, or maybe left by earthly parents who are gone, who have been abusive or, or negligent. Or you feel abandoned by a heavenly parent who seems absent or silent. There are times on the broken road when we feel like orphans. So the father, he divided the property between them. 
And it wasn't very long before the younger son packed his bags and left for a distant country. There, undisciplined and dissipated, he wasted everything he had. Over and over again, I have left for a distant country. I mean, the addicted life can be like living in a distant country. I've gone to faraway places, searching for, for something. I am the prodigal over and over again. When I ignore the true place of love and look for it elsewhere, often ending up dissipated, wasting everything, feeling completely estranged from others and from God. I mean, heading for the far country allows me to believe heart and soul that I am on my own, a stranger to the Father, to home. I will say this, there was no more strange experience than waking up in my home one morning in the midst of this relapse to find several people from the church in my home. I mean, I, I could list them for you, the, the Trawicks, the Kimbriels, the Brereton's, the Clarks, the Hyatts, um, Elaine Stark, well, Elaine... Elaine, you came back tonight. <laughs> Elaine had gotten a copy of my house key, and she had made a copy for other people so that they could just pop into my house and check on me. Um, now, that made me mad back in January. But I want to tell you my story tonight in part because I want to tell you what kind of a church this is. It is a church that loves strange women. <laughs> well, one morning... Peter and a few other people showed up because I was acting strange. And Peter asked if I would go with him and Jen Clark to a place called Whiz Quiz to get a urinalysis to, to see if I was drinking or not. Now that's strange, going with your pastor to a place called Whiz Quiz? Well, to everyone's relief, I tested negative for alcohol, but positive for methamphetamine. <laughs> now, I would not know where to get meth or what to do with meth. And we later learned that it was a false positive, but my response was further outrage. Um, feeling completely estranged from people who were desperately trying to love me. I mean, maybe you know what it's like to be a stranger. Feeling alone in a congregation, or alone in your struggles with addiction, financial distress, or a difficult marriage, or maybe you just feel strange because you drive a car that was made in the 80s. Or you can't figure out where to fit into a small group in church. I mean, there are times on the broken road when we feel like strangers. Well, after the son had gone through all his money, there was a bad famine all through that country, and he began to hurt. He signed on with a citizen there who assigned him to his fields to slop the pigs. He was so hungry. He would have eaten the corn cobs in the pig slop, but no one would give him any. See, in hardening my heart, deciding that I could be fully independent and do whatever I wanted, I was ultimately left hurting and hungry. But I concluded that even though many friends here were trying to help me, they didn't really understand. In my hard heart, my determination to do things my way kept me on the broken road feeling like an outcast. I mean, feeling outcast, it can leave us feeling pretty unlovable and wondering about our place in the world. Yes, the broken road can lead us to feeling like orphans, strangers, 
or outcasts. And I was desperate to get off that road, but I wasn't quite sure how. Pascal writes that understanding that desperation, it comes from experiencing it radically. I think I know what he means. Because here on the broken road, in my desperation, feeling like an orphan, a stranger, an outcast, it is here I begin to see one who is desperate for me. I am loved so much I am free to leave home, to travel the broken road, to end up in desperation, experiencing its reality, its, its hopeless anguish and activity, and then. God breaks into my personal life story to reveal his desperation for me. You see, the most radical experience of desperation does not come in experiencing it in our stories, but seeing its reflection in another story, in God's story. I have to tell you, even last night I prayed that there would be a blizzard today. And that church would be canceled, and then it wasn't this morning, and then, you know, Peter said we were going to go ahead and have it tonight, too. Um, Because I I was nervous. I am nervous about talking about my desperation. I had a panic attack this last week. But I am so grateful that God does not shrink back from desperation. He, He weaves it throughout his narrative. I mean, consider the New Testament stories alone and the people that Jesus chose to interact with. They might not be the people that we would ask to give testimonials at our big events. I mean, there was the woman caught in adultery. The prostitute humiliating herself by pouring her perfume on Jesus' feet. The outcast tax collector. The pitiful man blind from birth. The thirsty Samaritan woman who could not keep a husband. The sick and grasping rag woman and the doubting, denying, betraying disciples. I wonder if God tells their stories in part because they reveal something about him. I think that one of the reasons that the desperation that inevitably comes on the broken road is is so feared and hated is our failure to understand God's desperation. I think seeing God's desperation can transform mine. His anguish, his humiliation, his relentless pursuit reveal the potential holiness of my desperation. Why God actually blesses the broken road. I mean, he uses the broken road to respond directly to our feelings of being orphaned, estranged, or outcast. Dan Allender says it something like this. We experience losses, assaults, sin, woundedness, and confusion as orphans, strangers, and outcasts. Should it surprise us then that God wants to make himself known as the father who protects the orphan, as the lover who cherishes the stranger, and as the savior who redeems the outcast, the triune God who is one wants to redeem our story and restore with his love what our stories have taken from us. Well, the son in the pig pen, desperate, That brought him to his senses. He said, all those farmhands working for my father sit down to three meals a day, and and here I am starving to death. I'm going back to my father. I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against God. 
I've sinned before you. I don't deserve to be called your son. Take me on as a hired hand. And he got right up and went home to his father. And when he was still a long way off, his father saw him. His heart pounding, he ran out, embraced him, and kissed him. God meets us on the broken road when we feel like orphans as a desperate father. The desperation of God as parent, it really begins in his first story when he asked Adam the unending question that he asked all wayward children. Where are you? I think God probably knew the precise bush behind which Adam cowered. But his question is more the agonizing question of parents whose daughter is in a destructive lifestyle or whose son brashly announces, I can take care of myself as he walks out the door. Where are you? I've often wondered how modern psychoanalysts would diagnose this father and the prodigal in the Luke 15 story. I mean, it is impossible to exaggerate the desperation of the prodigal. He ends up homeless and penniless, slopping hogs, wanting to eat scraps from the pig pen. But it is equally impossible to exaggerate the desperation of the father. His daily watch as he looks for it and waits for his wayward son. When the father and the son are united, the son starts his speech. You know that speech that he started practicing back in the pig pen? I imagine that he practiced it all the way home. Um, because his words sound a little rehearsed. The son started the speech and he said, Father, I've sinned against God. I've sinned before you. I don't deserve to be called your son ever again. I've been there on that broken road, rehearsing my sins, promising to never do them again, full of self-contempt and shame. And the next verse in the Luke story is my favorite verse in scripture. It says, but the father wasn't listening. I'm sure in that split second, the son thought, he's done with me. I've finally blown it. I've scorned the Father's love until there is none left. John Veneer writes that the love of God is not reserved for those who are well known, for those who do wonderful things. It is for those desperate enough to welcome the Father's love. It's for people living ordinary lives who are lonely. It's for all those who are old, hospitalized, out of work, who open their hearts in trust to the Father and cry out for his healing love. Well, the Father wasn't listening because he was calling to his servants, quick, bring a clean set of clothes and dress him. Put the family ring on his finger, sandals on his feet, and then get a grain-fed heifer and roast it. We're going to feast. We're going to have a wonderful time. It's a party. It could sound a bit like a wedding feast even because God doesn't just meet us on the broken road as a desperate father. But at the times when we feel most estranged, he meets us as a desperate lover. The love story of God. It makes the 50 million paperback romance novels that are sold every year seem dull. I mean, God's description of his lover in the Old Testament, it's painful in its humiliating detail, and 
and it's parallel to our stories. But you have lived as a prostitute with many lovers. Would you now return to me? Look up to the barren heights and see, is there any place where you have not been ravished? By the roadside you sat waiting for lovers, sat like a nomad in the desert. You have defiled the land with your prostitution and wickedness. You have the brazen look of a prostitute and you refuse to blush with shame. Wow. God's intention for this traitorous lover? It's even more staggering. He says, therefore, I'm going to allure her. I'm going to lead her into the desert to speak tenderly to her. That God invites such waywardness to intimacy is, it's beyond our comprehension. But that he desperately hungers for this intimacy so much that he would search for us on the broken road to find us just to tenderly invite us home. That is beyond our human understanding. In fact, this desperate love of God compels us to consider that he is simply more in love with us than our human minds are capable of reconciling with the ways that we have thought about God. In the Old Testament story of God's love, the prostitute returns again and again and again and again to her old ways ending up in a completely desperate state. And then God unveils his desperate lover's heart when he says to her, how can I give you up? My heart is changed within me. All my compassion is aroused. I mean, God compassionately blesses the broken road because it can lead to the love that we have been looking for all our lives. I mean, no one longs for love or feels more loverless than we do when we are in a state of desperation. Seeing God as desperate lover, waiting for us, looking for us, wincing with hope, gathering up his robes, running toward us, abandoning all respectability just so he can kiss us. I mean, that answers the broken longings of our heart. When I am unashamed of my brokenness because of the tenderness of this lover, I begin to trust in his unconditional acceptance of me as I am, not as I should be. God loves me whether I am in a state of grace or disgrace. Whether I live up to the lofty expectations of his gospel or I don't. He comes to me where I live and he loves me as I am because redemption always begins with what God does first. We offer him nothing. And he gives us everything. Well, there's one more character in this story in Luke 15. I think that God often tells the story of a, a sinner and a Pharisee, a prodigal, an older brother, to reveal that we all suffer from the same condition. We all fall way short of the glory that God intends for us. Well, all this time the older son was out in the field. When the day's work was done, he came in, and as he approached the house, he heard music and dancing. Calling over one of the houseboys, he asked, what was going on? He told him, your brother came home. Your father has ordered a feast because he has him home safe and sound. But the older brother stalked off in an angry sulk and refused to join in. His father came out and tried to talk to him, but he wasn't listening. We've heard that before in this passage, haven't we? 
Out of a heart full of mercy and grace, the father was not listening to the son's condemning confession. Out of a hard heart, this second son was not listening, making him prodigal. The son said, look how many years I've stayed here serving you, never giving you one moment of grief. But have you ever thrown a party for me and my friends? I mean, the son of yours who's thrown away your money on whore shows up and you go all out with a feast. His father said, son, you don't understand. I am certain that this second son felt outcast. See, God meets us on the broken road, whether it is marked by humiliation or hard work, as a desperate savior. I mean, when we leave home as prodigals or Pharisees, determined to do things our own way, oh, how he longs for us to get to this desperate place where we know we cannot save ourselves. We need a savior. Robert Capon, an Episcopal priest, writes about this story in Luke 15. He explains that the older brother was invited to the party too. I mean, the father went out to the field to give him a special invitation. And when the brother refused, determined to stay in the hell of his own effort, Capon imagines the father saying, stop it. Just stop it. This isn't about bookkeeping. It's a matter of life and death. A few years ago, I was in a place of desperation again. I was angry and afraid and I couldn't figure out what God was doing in my life because he did not seem to be making things work. One morning I got up for a run and I, I came around a corner on the path that was going through the woods and there in the middle of the path was a deer. Now, I'm a little afraid of wildlife. And so I tried to shoo it away and it just stood there. So finally I decided to run the other way and I turned around and I kind of looked over my shoulder and it looked like the deer was coming after me. And so I, I ran as fast as I could, came back to my room, collapsed. I was mad. I cried out to God, even the freaking deer are chasing me. The next morning I went out for a run again. I came to the same place in the path and there lay a half-eaten baby deer. See, I immediately understood the deer hadn't been chasing me. This mother deer had been standing watch, wanting to protect its, its baby from potential predators. And in that moment, I could see the father meeting me on the broken road saying, Sharon, just stop it. Stop it. Stop protecting yourself. Stop proving yourself. This isn't about saving yourself or earning love. It's a matter of life and death because it is about letting me love you. I'm so grateful for the sermons that I have heard in this church from our pastor, relentlessly reminding us of the truth about the saving love of God. In one sermon, he said this. I ask you this morning if it was weird if I quote you while you're here. Um, Peter said, don't be afraid of Jesus. He's the one you long for. So wild, he'll hang on a cross and sacrifice everything for you. You don't need to be afraid of someone who will give his life for you. It's a redemption of my despair. It begins when I, I stop reading the Bible as if it's a textbook of answers for Sunday school questions. It's a matter of life and death for us to become intrigued, amazed, and dumbfounded by the stories of a desperate Savior. Reading John 19 
I encounter a story of such desperation that my pink women's devotional Bible can fall to the floor. And I weep as I see anew the wooden cross, the gambling executioners, the crude nails, the gaping wounds, the cup of vinegar, the cry of utter despair from the fatherless son and the anguishing turning away of the sonless father and the broken road. It is on the broken road that I see more clearly than ever that God, that God became broken for me. Described by Frederick Beekner as the, the most hideous creature, the one with the swollen lip and the cauliflower ear and the ruptured spleen. This is a God of desperate grace who desires that all men and women be saved, that, that all broken people be made new.
God blesses the broken road because it leads to a party. A party greater than our wildest imaginations. It is a party for prodigals, for addicts, for Pharisees, for failures. There are no requirements, no entrance fees. God blesses the broken road because that is where we find the father of orphans, the lover of strangers, the savior of outcasts. There was one morning during my month of treatment last winter that I cried out for God to find me in the midst of all my brokenness. At 3 a.m. on a cold February morning, these are the words that he gave me. And I share them with you tonight in hopes that, that maybe some of these words will speak to your broken places. Dear, dear broken Sharon, I do see you this morning, angry that you're broken, sad that you're broken, riddled with guilt and pain. I do see you this morning, and I see your story. Please believe that I am the grand story writer of your life. You are not. Dear Sharon, I do see your failures, your lies, your drunkenness, your manipulation, as well as your success and pain and glory and gifts. And I know that you know, but how I long for you to believe, heart and soul, that my grace is to find you in the midst of all these. I find your story interesting, meaningful, heartbreakingly beautiful, because it is the perfect story. You are the perfect story for me to tell. You are not an orphan. I delight to call you daughter. That means your strength and your weakness, your generosity and anger, your gifts and inadequacies, your energy and weariness, your accomplishments and utter lostness. Yes, dear daughter, when you are drunk and cannot find your way to your seat, I am proud to put my arm around you, gently lead you to your seat, sit beside you, and tell everyone, this is my daughter. You are not a stranger. I know in your heart of hearts you believe that your story is too much for anyone. But the truth is that I am too much for your story. Will you please believe that I forgive you, I heal you, I renew you every day, and that the stranger that seems to you the dearer you become to me because you see that you need me. And you are not an outcast. When you feel unwanted, instead of achieving, will you seek affection from me? When you feel weary, can you risk laying down your head? And when you feel unworthy, will you believe that you are my bride? bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. Look at me. Just look at me. I will never be unfaithful to you. I will never divorce you. You are mine. I guess that's really what I want you to hear, Sharon. I'm yours, and you are mine. May we bless the broken roads that lead us to the one who entered this world as an orphan without a place to lay down his head, as a stranger who came unto his own and they received him not, and as an outcast who walked up a broken road to a place called Golgotha, that he might find us and make us his own.
Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And so Jesus is the Father running to us out on the road. And on the night that we were most broken, that this world was most broken, the night that humanity denied and betrayed the only begotten Son of God, Jesus the Christ took bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body broken for you. My body, like the arms of the Father wrapped around you. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he said, this is the new covenant in my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it, all of you. Do it in remembrance of me. And so when this cup meets your lips, it's like the kiss of the Father. You see, this is the edge of a great party. The party began out on the road as the father wrapped his arms around his boy and covered him with kisses. And the party continues beyond space and time because his love endures forever. And the party is judgment. Paul said, uh, this table is judgment. And if you come to this table in an unworthy manner, you drink judgment upon yourself. And he described what unworthiness was. It's not discerning the body and the blood of the Lord. It's not receiving the Father's kisses, the Father's, the Father's hugs. And you'll remember that there was a son, uh, he was a prodigal too, that at the end of the story is left standing in a field. I think that's a picture of hell because he didn't want his father's love. He didn't want to let his father love him. And so if you come to this table, you're admitting, well, I am a prodigal. And father, I want to be a son. I want to let you love me. That's what it is to come to the table of the Lord. And so the father calls you to come to his banquet. And so I hope you do. Pray this prayer with me. You can pray it for the first time right now. Pray it every day. <laughs> you're, you're out on the road. Can you, can you, do you see that? That you are a prodigal. They come in all shapes and sizes. But they all think that somehow they can pay, that they can make it work, that they can earn their father's love, or they can be the Lord of their own life. We're all prodigals. And you're out on the road. But look, this is the father running to you in desperation. Do you understand that he gives absolutely everything for you? Absolutely everything. Do you want to love like that? Then just pray this prayer. In the silence of your own heart, just say, God, I, I am a prodigal. I want to be your son. I want to be your daughter.
and so I will let you love me. Tear off a piece of the bread, dip it in the cup. The dark cups are wine, light cups are juice. They're both the kisses of your father. Wasn't that worship fantastic? Um, if you want to worship more, uh, Resound is after the service. That's the band stays and leads us in worship. I have to tell you, I stayed last week. And I was up here at the front. I didn't know if anyone was behind me or not. I felt like it was this awesome worship service just for me. And it really was one of the most profound worship experiences I have ever had. So I want to encourage you, stay tonight. Um, it'll be immediately after the service. The lights will go down. Um, everyone else who wants to fellowship and talk and taste those pies can go downstairs. Um, the pies are great. I tasted them this morning. And you can sample pies. There's muffins, coffee, fellowship. And if you would like prayer, um, there'll be someone back here at the back um, to pray with you, and please don't hesitate to ask for that. So let me close um, quoting Peter again with maybe some of my favorite words that you say every week, and that is, believe the gospel. Let me pray. God, I do thank you that you paid it all, and that we can walk out of here tonight new I thank you that you love us, that you look for us, that you find us, and that your love does endure forever. I pray that whatever path we might be on this week, that our hearts would be soft, that you might be able to find us. In Jesus' name, amen.